I love it when we can get together. I love the sense of the spirit of, of uh, togetherness and the joy and the peace that we share, the way that we have worship together. And today, especially, uh, as we welcome you, those of you who are joining us at your homes or in your office space or wherever you are online, we invite you to experience the blessing and peace of God as well. And for those of us gathered in this house, as the Christ Journey family, we uh, want to come together and say, thank you, Lord. And I, I'm saying that because if you're a guest today, thank you for honoring us with your presence. Um, I want, I, I have a, a compelling sense that I need to pray today, and so I want to do it again with you and invite anybody who would like to join me. I'm going to get on my knees, and if you're a guest, please don't feel obligated to join me, um, but if you're a Christ journeyer and you would like to join me, I, I want to just get on my knees as we pray together today. So I, thank you, Lord, for the gift of today for the wonder of life, for the privilege of sharing it with people that we care about in this church family and people that have joined us uh, at our invitation today and for all of our families, for those around the world that are joining us today, we need your blessing. We invite your blessing. Our world seems like it's in such a huge mess. And so we bring the needs of the nations before you, the earthquakes, the war, the poverty, our nations of origin, 39, 40 of them within our own church family here. Uh, this nation, the United States of America, we pray, Lord, that you would forgive our sins and heal our land, that your blessing would flow to us and from us. And, and then we also pray for our own needs. Sometimes personal needs, the challenges just seem so big and, and we feel so small. I know I do. So today, Lord, may your word bring hope and uh, clarity and opportunity for us to follow your will and join you in the journey of life, even in the face of death. If you join me in this prayer, would you say amen? Amen. 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 Thank you. Now somebody want to help me get up? So it's like, man. The thing about praying on my knees is I spend more time there once I get down, you know? Um, so if you're wondering, is your pastor getting any more spiritual as he gets older? There you go. Um, you know, what a series this has been. Uh, the questions just keep getting easier, don't they? Have you noticed? And today, the tough question, our series has been asking for a friend, and we've fielded questions that people have brought to our attention and want to go deeper asking, what did Jesus say? How did Jesus handle these different topics? And today, the question is, what happens when you die? Now, okay, now there's something that concerns all of us, because you know what? Every one of us are going to die. It's the most democratic activity in the world. Everybody participates. Even if you don't want to, you're still in. George Bernard Shaw said one time, the statistics on death are very impressive. One out of one dies. You know, we're, it's, gonna, it's coming, it's going to happen, but then what? There's the question for today. And this is not a new question. I mean, it's been asked for thousands of years. Humanity has wondered, as Job did in his book, uh, if a man dies, shall he live again? Job 14, 14. You know, the ancient Egyptians, 4,000 years ago, built a civilization on the belief that there was, yes, life after death. That's what those pyramids were all about. The ancient Greeks, 
They uh, had a belief system claiming the immortality of the soul. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But what about us? What about today? What about our civilization? Well, I got three popular viewpoints that you will find in culture. If you ask people what happens when you die, one we could call lights out. This is a fatalistic view. This is materialistic view. This is matter is all there is and ever will be. So when you die, your existence is over. Case closed. Run the credits. The show's done. You know, There's no more to come. There's no more sequel. There's no thing. Jean-Paul Sartre, in his little book, Being and Nothingness, said, death removes all meaning from life. This is the fatalistic view, the pure materialist, the pure secularist view. Ernest Hemingway held this view. He wrote, death awaits us all like cold concrete awaits a falling light bulb. There's no hope in that, right? I mean, Freud, you read his story, you'll find that he was obsessively preoccupied with death. He suffered multiple heart attacks in his 30s. He lost his brother. He lost his daughter. Her son died at age four. And then when Freud was 40 years old, his father died. So, I mean, he was surrounded by death and he called it this painful riddle. And he struggled with this viewpoint, the fatalistic, secular, purely, purely, purely secular viewpoint. I'll get it out. It just lights out. It's over. Death means that everything loses its meaning, like a candle, and you're gone. Another viewpoint we could call the bright light theory. Now, this is not a religious viewpoint. This is a secular viewpoint of spiritism or soulishness beyond what we can see, but a reality that they testify to. It's, but it was popularized by psychiatrist Elizabeth Kubler-Ross several years ago. And at one time, before that, she claimed that belief in life after death was like a form of denial. And then all of that changed when she found what she called hard data as a scientist proving the existence of life after death. And the proof she said, was the testimony of numerous patients and their near-death experiences. You've read about these. You've heard about these, right? Maybe even saw movies. Near-death experiences that spoke about uh, people floating above their bodies as they died and then watching doctors trying to resuscitate them and then these mysterious spirit guides who usher them down a long tunnel and into a space where there's this bright white light and then they experience what they say was an examination of their life, and then the figure sends them back, which is how we hear those stories. Um, Dr. Ross was later involved with a channeler who would speak of her involvement and conversations with spirit guides from beyond. So upon that, she became very popular with New Agers, but she lost her credibility and her, uh, the respect of the medical and academic communities. But it is a viewpoint that's popularized. Third one we could call, here we go again. 
Here we go again. The basic tenet here is that the soul keeps on being recycled. We already talked about this just a moment ago. Again and again and again in uh, reincarnation. Now this baits back to the immortality of the soul idea with Plato, Greek idea. The idea that um, the soul, the human soul has no beginning and no ending. It always is. And so it will just keep recycling through this cyclical world experience. It's not a biblical idea. You don't find it anywhere in scripture. Uh, and the Bible teaches that only God is infinitely alive. He has no beginning. He has no ending. He is infinitely alive without beginning or end. But Eastern religions, uh, from which several new age expressions come, Hinduism and Buddhism, Eastern religions, believe that, that the soul, um, through death, will escape this mortal body, and then it's going to re be reborn into another body of a person or a thing or an animal, but that you recycle, your soul recycles infinitely through life. Just, uh, and until, unless and until, through self-control, self-discipline, and self-denial, severe self-denial, you can reverse karma in your life, bad karma, you trump it with good karma, you reverse bad karma, and then migrate, your soul will migrate into the realm of pure forms. Buddhism calls that nirvana. You've heard that word, right? Which, interestingly enough, it means nothingness. So yourself, what you call yourself, will be, that soul will be absorbed into the pure form of no thing. Nothingness. And until then, the way you behave under your own fuel determines how you're going to come back. Now, what does the Bible teach? What, well, we're, what we're asking isn't just what does the Bible say. We're asking, what did Jesus believe? What did Jesus teach? We want to help people find and follow Jesus. So when it came to death, what did Jesus say? Well, this, let me take us through a series of Q&A on this. The first question would be, what is death? Scripture defines death, and Jesus affirms this definition <laughs> as separation. So there, but that separation of the soul from the body is what we would call physical death. And then next is a separation or a misery of the soul from God. Separation from God, even though you may be in your physical body. Did you know it's possible for you to be physically alive and spiritually dead? That was my experience for years. I was dead, didn't know it until I met the Lord. And then there's a third level of death where you are separated not only, not from your body and from your, from your, um, your God, but also eternally. There is eternal death. And this is called the second death in the book of Revelation. That refers to the final state of the unredeemed wicked in hell that the scripture teaches was made for the devil. And, um, and it... At that point, you are eternally separated from God. So separation. Physical death is also, called a phys uh, uh, is also called an enemy. When our last enemy, the human experience of life, 
immortality. The last enemy is death. It, that enemy will be done away when the curse of sin is completely removed. We talked about this last week about the experience of heaven. And then Jesus not only talks, he doesn't talk about death being an enemy, he talks about death being asleep when he's with Mary and Martha and he's um, experienced the death of their brother who was a close friend of his. He tells his disciples, our friend Lazarus has gone to sleep and I gotta go wake him up. Teaching believers that we need to fear death about as much as you would fear going to sleep at night. That is if Jesus is at your bedside. You know, that's what Jesus is saying. It's no problem for me. <laughs> and even Paul, Paul says there's a status where you can say to die is gain. I'm not leaving it. I'm going to receive it. So I'm not only not afraid of it, I'm celebrating what's going to happen on the other side. That's what we talked about last week. Now, how could anybody say such a thing unless they're deluded or in denial, right? Next question. There is an answer to that question, though. Is there life after death? According to Jesus, yes, absolutely. No hesitation, no equivocation, without question. And there is most certainly life after death. And Jesus Christ is submitted as Exhibit A. This is the heart of our faith. This is what Easter is all about. I was remembering a story of a little guy in Sunday school who said, what did Jesus say when he came out of the grave to the Sunday school class? And he stepped up, he said, ta-da. It's like, yeah, this is the main event. This is the big enemy. This is what the curse did. It was taking it away. But now Jesus has opened it up. So yes, there is life after death. Christ is risen from the dead. That's what baptism declares to us. That our bodies will rise again because Christ rose. That our spirits can come alive in him so we're not spiritually separated from him anymore. And eternally we are with him because he has paid the entire penalty of our sin and has taken the consequences of the devil out of the equation. Christ is risen from the dead. And so he says to Mary at the same funeral where he's talking about waking Lazarus up, he says, you know, I am the resurrection and the life and he who believes in me, though they die, yet shall they live. Are the fatalists right? There's a question. When you die, is that it? Really? Is it all over? Are you just, hold you had a nice, hope you had a nice time, right? Just think about lights out. Is that it? You get a few decades of breathing air, of inhaling fragrance, of the wonderment of the cosmos. You get to engage in problem-solving experiences. You get to <laughs> taste the delicious flavors of wonderful food. You get to engage with people, some on a level here, but others go so deeply. And then sometimes you feel deeply moved and you just know this is not right. Something's got to change. And so your decades are just floating by. And then all of a sudden, it's over. You're done. Futility, no meaning. Is that right? Is that true? See, some people believe that. They're holding to that to this very day. It's the question that the resurrection answers. The Bible doesn't teach that. Jesus didn't believe that. He proved it wrong. In his own body, he proves it wrong. This is the heart of our faith. You look at 1 Corinthians 15, speaking of the body, we talked about the resurrection body last week. He had one, you will have one too when your faith is in Christ. It's part of the glorification 
of your salvation. Well, how do we know that we will? The Holy Spirit bears witness. He says, I'm going to send my spirit. He will be your counselor, your comforter. He will guide you into all truth. And Paul says, when the Holy Spirit bears witness in our spirit, he says, I've got you, you're mine. You're with me forever. Next question. Do we die many times? What about the whole recycle thing? The reincarnation thing, what about that? Here we go again. No. Jesus taught that history is linear. It's going somewhere. It is heading toward a climactic end. That we're not stuck in a repeat cycle over and over and over in this whirlpool of the spirit world where your ghost being will ultimately get absorbed one day. No. Jesus tells a story to that end of a rich man who died. He had every affluence and resource this world could provide, but he died, just like we talked about last week. He left it all. He's on the other side now, and in the story, Jesus says that he finds himself in conscious torment. He's hurting and he's aware of it. And so then he suddenly like, has this wake-up call and decides to be concerned about five brothers of his that are still on the other side. And so he says he wants them not to come to that place. So what can he do? Can we send somebody back so that they won't wind up where he is? And in the story, he's told, no messenger will be able to leave from this place to go back. It turns out that the warning that he's asking for has already been sounded multiple times. It's already been offered through the messengers of Scripture, through Moses, through the prophets. But no messenger, those who want to go from here, cannot. No one can cross over from there to us. Wasn't going to happen. We die once. It's the story of Jesus. There's no more around the wheel. There's no second chance after you die. According to Jesus. He, and Jesus made no mention of purgatory on the other side. No, you don't find it in the Bible. You don't find it in the teaching of the life of Jesus. Next question. What happens when we die? Then what, you know, what happens? Well, there's mystery here. But the scripture does speak into mystery, sometimes with clarity that we don't welcome. But this is what it says. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. Hebrews 9.27, the one thing we know for certain is that a day of accounting will follow the investment of our lives. The stewardship of life that we've received from the Creator God is going to show up where you can say, here's what I did, here's what happened. A day of accountability. Jesus taught that there's coming a day of accountability. Matthew chapter 25, verse 32, Jesus says this, people from all the nations will be gathered before the Son of Man. And then he's going to separate them as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. Now what the story tells us is that they were goats before they ever got there, and they were sheep before they ever got there. So the day of accounting is going to be an easy, just all the sheep on that side, all the goats on that side. You know, it's just a separate day of separation. Remember, death is about separation. And... Uh, John the Baptist, Matthew chapter 3, he said this, Christ will separate the chaff from the wheat 
in his ministry before Jesus ever got on the scene, he said, one is coming whose responsibility is going to be to separate the kernel from the husk. And Paul echoes this, 1 Corinthians 3. Our works will be tested. And then he says, we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive what we deserve. Don't you love justice? Oh, not, not applying it to me. But he will for the good or the evil we have done in this earthly body. Then kick this thing over to Revelation. It, see, it foresees a time when all of the dead from all of time are standing, who are image bearers of the divine and responding to life at God's gracious opportunity. It says they're all standing before him at the great white throne, the throne of God, Revelation chapter 20. And every one of them, great and small, famous and unknown, were all there. All the celebrities, all the politicians, all the people you've studied in history books, and there we are. And the books are opened, and the dead were judged by those books. What those books said they'd done. Now maybe you're wondering, I thought salvation was by faith, not works. It's a free gift that we receive from God through Christ. So what's, what's this stuff showing up about what I've done? Well, why are we being judged by what we've done? If I'm receiving the free gift of salvation, then how does this work? This is a great question, very significant question with a precise answer from scripture. The point is that real faith always shows up in actions. Faith without works is dead. But works doesn't earn your salvation, it simply expresses it. That what's on the inside shows up on the outside. And when the government of our life has changed and Christ's spirit has come alive inside us, his spirit starts bearing fruit. And then that fruit starts showing up in actions. And so that's how I understand that text. It's not about earning your way to heaven. It's showing the fruit that God has born because you welcomed him into your life. John Wesley said it this way, it is faith alone that saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. It always works. Something happens. What were the works? Well, the thief on the cross was the work of trusting Jesus and then being welcomed on his word into the kingdom that he had promised. Zacchaeus' work was being generous to those he'd cheated. Jesus said, hey, salvation came to this house today. The woman at the well, what was her work? And she went back into town and wasn't afraid to face her shame and her story and her past. Instead, she uses it to bring all these people to Jesus. There's, it shows up when Christ is alive in you. It shows up on the outside. So revealing that Christ is alive and at work. Next question. After the accounting, then what happens? Well, this is deep, but Jesus, remember we're asking, what did Jesus do? I didn't write this, but this is what the gospel writers say Jesus said that people will be consigned to their eternal destinies, heaven and hell. And both of these are experiences that defy description. C.S. Lewis said there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those who have chosen through their lives that now God will say to them, thy will be done. And if you've chosen to live life as if there is no God, and as if you are your own God, then you will be welcome to the afterlife as if you are God and you are your own God. So have it your way. 
and God is willing to let that happen, yes. Now, we're not going to drill down into this one. I've preached on it before, and we can look at those messages, but, but the Scripture's testimony is this. Every person in hell is there by their own choice. What does that mean? Because nobody chooses to go there, right? We'll talk about that in just a moment. But without self-choice, without your freedom of choice, then there would be no hell. Talk about that in just a second. Next question. Did Jesus believe in heaven and hell? Yes. Yes, he spoke with authority, with clarity, with reality about both of them. This is what he said. Aim at heaven, avoid hell. Heaven is to be targeted because you were meant for more than simply this life. Hell is to be avoided at all costs. And so mostly what he said about hell was, don't go there. Don't go there. And last week we explored this fantastically mind-blowing description of what eternity with God in heaven is going to look like. You know, just stretched English, stretched the language, the Greek language, stretched the language to its limits. And then Paul throws in and he says, and you know what? It hasn't even entered your head yet. We haven't heard it, we haven't seen it, we don't know what it's going to be, but it's going to be, whoa, to the good. Well, when Jesus spoke of hell, he likewise used a powerfully emotional, repulsive image that would have been familiar to everybody who lived in Jerusalem and all of Israel. He used the word Gehenna for eternity without God. Now, Gehenna was a real place. Right outside of Jerusalem, the Valley of Hinnom, located at the southeast of Jerusalem, where Old Testament times, sacrifices, human sacrifices had been made to a pagan god, Molech. And it was a place so despised by the Jews that they made it a garbage dump outside the city. And so they would throw all their trash, all their refuse from the city, including the animals of, uh, the bodies of dead animals and Criminals who'd been crucified, that's where Jesus' body was supposed to wind up, except Joseph of Arimathea said, you can use my tomb, right? That's where he was supposed to wind up. And then those garbage fires would be burned day and night. Maggots would devour them constantly. Wild dogs would fight over the scraps. That was the image that people would have had. They would know the stench of it. And they would know, hey, don't go there. Keep your kids away from there. The emotional image that he used, that was, what was he trying to communicate? Of all the images available to Jesus and all the wonderful teaching that he does and life that he lived, why did he choose this image to communicate the reality of eternal death? It's repulsive. It's, uh, it's full of rot. It's utter loss. And actually, Jesus specifically mentions this in some, some context. He says, what's going to profit a man? It's like, okay, let's do a cost-benefit analysis of your future portfolio. What if you take everything that you have gained the whole world, and yet you lose your soul? This isn't just physical death. It's spiritual death. It's eternal death. You lose forever your psyche. Psychology, we get from that word. You lose yourself. How do you weigh that out? In uh, Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount, he says, you know what? It's better to lose an eye. I don't want to lose an eye, do you? No, but there's something that it would be better. It would be better for you to lose an eye or to have your right hand cut off than to lose your psyche, yourself, your very soul, and your, have your whole body thrown into hell. Those are the words of Jesus. Don't go there. 
Did you know he said more about hell than he did about heaven? Why? Why? He doesn't want anybody to go there. Then why do people go? I mean, hell exists not. It, it, Jesus said heaven is the place prepared for you. Do you remember him saying that? You know who hell was prepared for? The devil and the rebellious angels as a place of spiritual punishment and containment so that that evil will not uh, infect or putrefy any other part of the eternal expression, experience. It's a place meant for the devil. Then why do people go there? Well, because they got distracted to neglect getting ready for the inevitable before it came. So the devil's big game is let's keep some people so busy that they don't have any time for God. Let's just keep them busy. Let's keep them preoccupied. Let's keep them going. Let's keep them distracted. Let's keep them. Don't, don't, don't tell them about that. And then there'll be that moment. Like the rich guy who's in torment saying, some are there in active rebellion. I mean, these are the ones who really say, no. I'm going to be my own God. I'm going to do my own thing. And, you know, Heaven be damned, I'm doing it my way. Some are just complacent in their mutiny. It's still mutiny, but it's like, you can't make me. They're not, a, they're not gonna pick a fight, they're not trying to aggravate anybody, they're just not making preparation themselves. And then some, Jesus told a story about this, he said, when we, get on the, when we come to that day of separation, there are gonna be people who say, no, God, you're the one who needs to be judged. You're the one who's not been fair. You're the one who hasn't sent enough signs for me to follow. And they're, they're obvious and they're there in the story, but the people don't even see it. It says they, they believe that they're oblivious to their own needs and their own responsibility, and they're casting blame God's way. And you've heard it done. I mean, you know, I've done it myself. Lord, I don't get this. This doesn't seem right. This doesn't seem fair. I don't want it. So they think God needs to be judged. But Jesus went to that cross, the one that we display, not to remind us of where he went, ultimately to say, I don't want you to go there, and I'm willing to pay the whole price so that you won't, and that's why I'm coming. I mean, it was like Jesus, in Jesus, God was saying, you know what, if you want to go, I'll let you, because I'll honor your choices all the way out but you'll have to go there over my dead body. And that's what the cross means. So what are our choices? Well, when Jesus, Jesus said life was a series of choices and consequences. Do you agree with that? You make a choice, there's a consequence. You experience the consequence, you decide what choice you're gonna make next time, and then you start evaluating your choices by the consequences. That's what this message is ultimately about. Choices and consequences that Jesus say come from that eternal perspective. And in the Sermon on the Mount, here's what he said. There are two gates that everybody chooses from. There's a wide gate and there's a narrow gate. The wide gate, lots of people travel on because it leads to the wide road. There are two roads you can make in life. Two, Two ways you can make your life journey. There's a wide road that everybody seems to be on, and there's a narrow road that that little gate led to that seems like fewer people are taking the, taking the time to take that, that journey. But if you take it, you'll find out that there are two kinds of guides that you can follow that will lead you to two ultimate destinations that will uh, 
or two ultimate choices that you make about how are you gonna build, two ways to build your life. You're either gonna find out in the, when the storm comes, same storm is coming to both choices, but the storm comes and you're gonna discover that you just built your whole life and, and future on sand, or you built your life and future on rock. And he said, the one who hears my words and practices them, there's faith in action, there's the evidence, will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And when the storm comes and the waves hit it and the, the rains fall and the winds blow, the house is going to stand because of the choice that you made. And then from those ultimate, those construction designs to ultimate destinations, happening to people who make those choices. One is eternal life with God, and the other is utter ruin with his words. These are Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, I'm gonna say, depart from me. I never knew you. You don't wanna hear those words. In fact, I hope this is the only time anybody listening ever hears those words, because these are not words you wanna hear from Jesus. When I lived in Little Rock, a very wealthy man who was a member of my church, popular figure in contemporary life in Little Rock invite, would invite me to small luncheons that he would host, kind of forum lunches with area leaders from the capital city. And they, we would sit around a table at lunch and then he would throw out controversial topics and then he'd just watch what happened. You know, and it was, it was that's what happened. Um, one day I was invited to join them and the topic was the Bible and judgment. And I was the preacher. You know, the <laughs> a Bible guy who's supposed to show up. Well, one guest was a powerful attorney who said that he had heard Billy Graham say that God has tapes of every deed, of every word, of every action, of every person, and at the judgment, he's just gonna hit play. And then the evidence will be there for all to see. And, he, and the, the lawyer said, I don't believe that. He didn't believe it, he said, I hoped it's not true. And then he said that the thought of it made him extremely uncomfortable because he said, I don't know if I'd make it out. And he was being very transparent, showing up. And, um, and then it was like, okay, the token preacher was sitting there, so it's my turn. <laughs> what am I supposed to do with that? You know, so I try to gently enter the conversation with the, uh, the teaching that Jesus said, this is, this is what the Bible says about all of us. It is extremely uncomfortable, but trying to give us an, a heads up so that we can make preparations before we're discovered unprepared. Okay, banker right across the table from me, as I said that, his response was this. <laughs> he accused me of pe and people like me of running a lottery for Jesus. He said, uh, we're holding out false hope to people, which maybe isn't a bad thing. It's a harmless thing. Uh, it's essentially harmless, but it's not real. But it's kind of an ingenious way to make a living if you can do it. That was what he said to me. And then a former politician who was at the other end of the table, a uh, local political leader, said that he had had his fill of church as a kid. And he just thinks that he saw it as kid stuff, but he thought it was useful if you ever needed to stir up fervor to get votes on an issue. You know, we've never heard of that technique, have we? And in response, then, you know, turns to my end of the table, like, 
so glad I came to lunch today, you know. Um, but I tried to share the gospel. I tried to share why Christ came, why God did it this way, and how all of us in human history has shown that we just repeat this. We're like lemmings that head to our own self-destruction without paying attention to what's happening until it's like way too late, and then we don't know how we got here. And then how God has given us this freedom of choice and will not violate it because we are made in his image. He will not violate it, but will let us have it our way if that's the way you choose. If you want to live your life as if there is no God or as if you're your own God, then he will let you have an eternity and see how that works out for you. Even if our choice separates us from him, if you can't say no, then your yes doesn't matter. And um, months passed. One day, one of those men lay in the hospital, and the luncheon host called me up and asked if I would go to see him. And in the privacy of that hospital room, with only me and another close friend of his there, he opens up to me about how he really felt that day at the table at lunch, not about his fear of dying so much as about not being prepared for the decision, uh, not his decision for Christ has not prepared him to stand before God. He just didn't feel like his personal record was strong enough. Um, and he wanted to know, what do I do to get things right? And so I told him that receiving Christ as Savior by grace through faith is God's plan. I'm standing at the door. I'm knocking. If you're sensing that Christ is knocking at the door of your heart, then open the door. And he will give you his death in your place to remove the penalty of sin and his spirit in your life to start assuring you of his life in you. And that will start showing up in your life. And then I said, Jesus said, if you confess me before men, then I will confess you before my Father in heaven. And he interrupted my words and said, I confess him. I confess him. I confess him which made the other guest in the room feel very uncomfortable. Seriously, like, what just happened? Is this some sort of Jedi you know, manipulation going on here? Um, and like, they felt very uncomfortable, but then he and I prayed the prayer that I just said about trusting Christ, responding to the knock on the door, and then receiving his gift of salvation by faith. And, um, and not long after that, he died. I delivered the message at the funeral, and I told this story there. All the guests from the luncheon were there, as well as other politicals from the area were there, and I didn't tell it without permission to tell it, but this is what happened to me with him in the hospital those days ago. About a year and a half later, the lunch host died. He had also made his peace with God before that day came for him. I officiated his funeral, and I told the thousand suits that were gathered Dark suits everywhere, a sea of dark suits. And, and I told them that, that I was using his Bible, Mr. Witt's Bible, to just bring them through his journey. And I shared the gospel with them from his Bible. I'm telling you, that family is still precious to me 
before I left Little Rock to come and serve here, I was able, I was given the honor of baptizing his son-in-law, of baptizing his son, and someday we're gonna see each other again. Not only in this life, but in the next life, because there is life after death, and it's found in Jesus Christ. And when we're baptized, we declare that though we are buried with Christ, we will rise with him, and so also you will if you trust him. So this is the question. I think, I think one of the verses that Mr. Witt had to highlight was this one. If you have the Son, you have life. He that has not the Son does not have life. Do you have the Son in your life today? Because if you have welcomed Christ into your life, then the Holy Spirit will start giving you evidence, a peace within your heart, but then also a new sense of conscience that starts telling you, don't tell that lie. Tell the truth. Don't steal. Trust me. Confess him, and he will confess you before his Father in heaven. And then not only will you go, but here's the cool thing. You can take other people with you. Would you pray with me now? What is the Spirit saying to you? What has the words of Jesus made clear to you? Are you ready for the day when it comes? Then don't neglect it. Don't resist it. You're not gonna miss anything in life by trusting Jesus. He is the author of life. And he wants to give life more abundantly. If this is your moment to say, Jesus, I hear you knocking at the door of my heart, then pray this prayer with me right now. Lord Jesus, I believe you are God who came in love for me and died on the cross so that my sin's penalties would be forever removed from me. I believe you rose from the dead so that now your spirit can come alive in me. Forgive my sins, come alive in me. I welcome you to lead me in living your way as my Savior and my Lord. Now our heads still bowed just for a moment, but if you prayed that prayer and would let me ask God's blessing upon your next steps of faith, then I'm gonna invite you simply to raise your hand where you're seated and hold it up so that I can look around the room and call out and pray for you. And if you're joining us online, please click it into the conversation right there. Amen. Several hands right here in the front, in the center section right here. And then to my right, I'm seeing, thank you. God bless you. Amen. Amen. On the aisle on my left, God bless you. Toward the back, about four rows from the back, amen. On my left, thank you. Lord Jesus, for every person who by uplifted hand is saying, I've opened my life to you, make yourself known to me. We pray you'll do it right now, that you'll bring new peace and a rising joy and a sense of of confidence, of being yours, of being settled in who you are. And Lord, we also pray blessing for the next step to declare this, to confess this through baptism as we saw earlier in this experience until you come again. And we will raise our glasses in gratitude. In your name we pray, amen.